Chapter 9, How to Stop Eating Your Feelings Fairy Godmother, Stop the car! Harold, you forced me to do something I really don't want to do. King, wait, wait, where are we? Fast food clerk, well, hi there. Welcome to Medieval Friar. May I take your order? Fairy Godmother, my diet is ruined. I hope you're happy. Chocolate therapy. In 2013, my husband Steve was deployed to Bahrain. Usually, he would deploy on a ship and the family members back home would create a community to support each other. This was not like that. He was deployed solo to a small staff on the other side of the world. So, back home, there were no other families in the same situation. We were on our own. He had been gone for about two months when Halloween rolled around. And the kids looked so adorable in their costumes. Our son was a ninja, and our daughter was dressed as Thomas the Train. In fact, my text message signal on my phone is still a train whistle in homage to Thomas the Train because she loved Thomas the Train so much. But I digress. So this Halloween, the kids walk the neighborhood, and they fill their jack-o'-lantern buckets with all sorts of goodies. And I took pictures, and they were so cute. And all I could think the whole time was... Steve is missing this, and I was missing him something fierce. So later that night, after giving them a chance to enjoy some of their candy and such, I put the kids to bed. I was tired too, but I just couldn't face going to bed alone. So I stayed up, and I watched mindless TV way past the time I would normally go to bed, and the kids' candy was just there waiting for me, staring at me, calling to me. And so I ate chocolate, lots and lots of chocolate. Grief bacon. Why do we eat our feelings? It's human nature to seek pleasure and avoid pain. Our neural systems are wired that way to help keep us alive. When we get stressed, our brains want relief from those painful feelings. Watching Netflix feels better than feeling stressed or sad, and eating mindlessly feels a lot better than feeling bored. Food is a quick and reliable source of dopamine, which feels good. So when you're feeling a negative emotion in the brain, it can send up a thought that says, I know what'll help, food. By the way, fun fact, the German language actually has a word for this. It's called Kummerspect which loosely translates to the weight we gain when feeling emotionally sad. The literal English translation is grief bacon. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up perfectly. However, the way that food is designed these days, it overstimulates the dopamine receptor sites. Over time, the brain down-regulates receptor sites, almost like developing a tolerance for alcohol. And thus, when you have a little bit of the treat, the brain says, give me more. By the way, in the book, there's this really cute little drawing of a brain that is feeling very grumpy and holding up its fist, shaking, just give me cookies and nobody gets hurt. And that is the definition of emotional hunger. So emotional hunger is just as real as physical hunger, but the root cause is different. Therefore, trying to satisfy emotional hunger with food doesn't actually solve the issue. By the way, how can you tell if you're feeling physically hungry or emotionally hungry? 
physical hunger is based in the body. It comes on gradually and it's open to all kinds of food. In other words, eating an apple would help you feel satisfied. Emotional hunger tends to be for a specific kind of food, like a craving. It can come on quickly. It tends to be paired with upsetting emotions. It feels urgent and it feels impatient. Often having like just one of the food is not going to quite satisfy that feeling. Emotional hunger often comes associated with a feeling of guilt later on. So let me ask you, have you ever finished an apple and thought, I could eat six more of these? Yeah, I haven't. But I certainly have had that feeling about Hershey Kisses. Emotional hunger is when you find yourself staring at the pantry thinking, what do I want to eat? Or what am I in the mood for today? Without really remembering actually getting there in front of the pantry in the first place. You're more likely to fall prey to emotional hunger later in the day because your willpower tank is running on fumes and it's harder to make decisions. Solving emotional hunger with food just covers up the problem and pretends it's not there. Since the root cause of emotional hunger is based in an emotional need rather than a physical one, the solution needs to address your feelings, not your food. Here's a way to do that. Ask yourself, why am I eating? When you reach for a food, try and notice why you're eating. Then make a proactive choice on whether or not you still choose to eat whatever that food is. Just getting the feel for the various reasons why you might be tempted to eat can help you gain a lot of awareness into the difference between emotional hunger and physical hunger. Sometimes we invalidate our feelings or dismiss the stress we feel because we think, well, somebody else has it worse, or we think, I shouldn't complain, things like that. Hear me when I say, no one wins the most stressed award. The stress you feel is real. It doesn't matter if someone else might have a more stressful job or if your circumstances are really pretty great in general. You're still feeling stress and ignoring it is like pretending the drain isn't getting clogged up. Over time, that gook in the drain or stress in the body accumulates unless you address it. Thoughts are the language of the mind. Emotions are the language of the body. They both matter. Emotions are just like anyone else. They want to be validated and heard. If you ignore them, they'll keep knocking on your door until you address them. So give yourself some credit and validate your feelings. Willpower and white bears. Food and drink are glamorized in our society. It's everywhere. It can be birthday cake or Doritos or a glass of Cabernet. Ads and media portray it as you'll be happier if you just have some. Whether it's sugar or chips or alcohol, there is the unspoken assumption that you should be able to consume this proven addictive substance, quote, without having a problem. So there's a stigma around not feeling 100% totally in control of your cravings. And yet so many of us live in this quiet torment thinking there's something wrong with me because you have a competing desire between wanting it and wanting to not want it. You start the day thinking, I'll be good today. I am definitely not having sugar today. And then later the craving sneaks in and you second guess yourself. Afternoon self begins to negotiate with morning self. 
and by 4.43 p.m., Morning Self is exhausted. She's worn out from the demands of the day, and Afternoon Self has a very different agenda. Whether it's sugar cookies or Chardonnay, it's like you want it against your own will. Ironically, battling against the desire actually increases the desire. Yeah, you heard that right. Resisting it actually makes you want it more. When you tell yourself you, quote, can't have chips or ice cream or whatever, that creates a dichotomy in yourself between the rebel who wants it and the tyrant who says no. No matter who is winning in the moment, part of you is losing. In her book titled The Willpower Instinct, Kelly McGonigal, PhD, explains how telling ourselves we, quote, can't have something actually makes us think about it more. In an experiment conducted by Harvard psychologist Daniel Wegner, study participants were asked not to think about a white bear. Anything else was fair game, just not a white bear. As you may have guessed, students failed miserably at trying not to think about white bears. Wegner coined this phrase, ironic rebound, to describe when we try not to think of something, we end up thinking about it even more. Here's what's happening in the brain. When you try not to think about something, like, I don't know, ice cream, you send a message to the subconscious mind to look out for any thoughts of ice cream. What this does is it keeps the thought of ice cream front and center because the subconscious mind is always on alert for it. So trying to suppress thoughts of ice cream or chips or wine or whatever is a double blow to your self-control. Number one, it constantly brings the thought of the forbidden thing to mind. That means you're not making one decision not to have ice cream. Instead, you're forcing yourself to decide over and over again whether or not to have the ice cream. Number two, this leads to decision fatigue. Making decisions about anything, much less deciding to avoid ice cream, drains your willpower. So by telling yourself not to think about ice cream, you're draining your willpower. Meaning before long, you've got nothing left in your willpower tank to make a proactive choice and you inevitably end up plunging into the freezer for the tub of ice cream. In addition, we often don't understand the difference between battling against the desire and learning the tools to address it. That struggle creates anxiety and that anxiety creates more reason to want to eat or drink. We unwittingly create the self-perpetuating cycle. Have a thought about sugar leads to struggle, which leads to anxiety, which leads to giving in or wanting more to solve that anxiety, which then strengthens the neural pathway for turning to sugar. Crazy, right? Oddly enough, the solution to the dilemma is to actually allow yourself to think about whatever it is. Make it okay for thoughts about the food you're craving to come and go in your mind. Wait, what? That sounds terrible. (laughs) Actually, if you're willing to get curious, the key to your freedom lies on the other side of a little discomfort. Doggy drool and cravings. Back in the day when Pavlov was experimenting on his dogs, he noticed that the dogs learned to expect food when the bell rang. He could tell they were expecting food because they were salivating. Over time, the dogs mentally connected the bell with food. 
So the bell triggered their desire for food as evidenced by salivating. The same thing happens in our brain. There is an automatic response. Trigger leads to desire. So for example, let's say the trigger is it's 4.37 p.m. on Friday. The desire is I want a glass of wine. Or maybe the trigger is my kids need help with their homework when I'm trying to finish writing a blog post. The desire is I want chocolate. If a dog drools, do you try and put the drool back into its mouth? Or do you just go get a paper towel and wipe it up? You wipe it up, right? It's fruitless to try and put the drool back in their mouth. And that would be kind of gross too. It's the same thing with desire. Once the desire is there, trying to put it back in is fruitless. But that's what we're doing when we resist our desire. Whether you're hankering for Zagnuts or Zinfandel, once the desire is there, resisting it won't make it go away. Resisting it creates a battle of cognitive dissonance within you. This I want it, I don't want it push-pull. That dissonance amps up your anxiety. And increasing anxiety feeds the desire for whatever substance you're jonesing for in the first place in order to make the anxiety go away. It's a vicious cycle. Darn you, drool. By the way, there's a lesser known part of Pavlov's experiment. Once the trigger desire pattern was established, meaning the bell led to drool, Pavlov also wanted to see what would happen when he rang the bell, but did not bring the dog's food. Naturally, at first, they still had that patterned response. The bell led to the drool, but then there was no food as a reward. Over time, the dogs learned that the bell no longer meant that food was coming. So they gradually unlearned the pattern response. And just like doggy brains, our brains can be trained too. Desire can be unlearned. But first you gotta look that desire in the face and question if it's true. Imperfect brains. Holy mother of pearl, I exclaimed as I, no joke, jumped 15 feet in the air away from the snake. See, my daughter and I were walking the dogs when I noticed the snake out of the corner of my eye. We live in Florida and the poisonous cottonmouth snake is pretty common where we live. I was worried that the dogs would spook it and cause it to strike at them. So, thank goodness I saved the dogs from a painful bite and mortal injury, of course. And my daughter said, um, where's the snake? And I said, well, it's right there. I was pointing right at a snake so that Annie could see it. And by the way, avoid it. Hello. Except I was pointing at a stick. Are you serious? I just freaked out over a stick? Ugh, sigh. My heart was racing. My palms were sweaty. I had all the physical reactions to a real snake. And I was ready to fight or flight my way out of there and dragging my daughter along with me. But what was going on inside my head was not real. We do this all the time. Well, it's easy to realize that my thoughts about a really big, scary snake were not true when it turns out to be a stick. Other false thoughts can be a lot harder to spot. Your brain is imperfect. It's going to have thoughts that are not always helpful, like, I want crackers even though I'm not hungry. Brains have thoughts. That's what they do. 
Yet we expect our brains to be perfect when we wish we could just, quote, get over our cravings and never have the desire to eat when we're not hungry or just see food as fuel. Expecting your brain to be perfect is like expecting an infant to sleep through the night. You can expect that all you want, but you're likely to be disappointed. It's not the baby's fault that its stomach is too small to keep it full longer than a few hours. In the same way, it's not your brain's fault that it comes up with thoughts like, I want chocolate at the end of a long day. Just because you have a thought doesn't make it true, nor does it mean you need to act on it. It also doesn't mean that you're bad or weak because you had the thought. It's just your brain repeating a pattern that it's accidentally learned over time. Human brains are really good at delegating repeated patterns to the lower brain because that saves energy. When something is delegated to the lower brain, that makes it beneath the surface of your awareness. Yeah, remember Hagrid the crocodile? Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. When you feel a desire for sugar or snacks, it's simply your lower brain repeating the habit loop. When you've always had a snack at 4 p.m., your brain is working properly when it sends up a snack suggestion at 3.45. It does not mean you have no willpower. It's simply something you've taught your brain to expect, so it puts that pattern on repeat. It can be scary to feel a little out of control of the desire when the lower brain is making demands to satisfy the craving. Sugar can create increasing desire because it provides an intense reward to the brain. Your brain wants to feel good. The more reward, the more the desire. So we find ourselves faced with these competing desires. The prefrontal cortex, remember the planning part of your brain, wants to fit into the genes that you wore last year. On the other hand, the subconscious part of your brain, the habit part, says, I need chocolate right now or I will literally die. (laughs) Instead of assuming all of your thoughts are true, what if you looked at your thoughts with curiosity? Rather than blindly believing that you actually want chocolate right now, you can think, huh, that's interesting. My brain is telling me I want chocolate. Is that true? Or is it simply a habit I've accidentally trained my brain to ask for chocolate at this time of day? What do I really want right now? The lower brain is the in the moment decision maker. If you have not planned ahead with your planning part of your brain, the lower brain will win the argument every time in the moment every time. There are three options when you feel a desire. Number one, act on it. So you eat the cookie, pour the drink. This of course perpetuates the cycle. Number two, you can resist it, push against it. This creates anxiety, which increases the desire. Desire plus anxiety wears you down and eventually you cave, thus perpetuating the cycle. Or you can allow it. Don't resist the desire. Allow it to be there. Don't make it try to go away. Basically, allow your doggy brain to drool all over your mental sofa. (laughs) Don't try to push the drool back in the dog's mouth. Observe the feeling in your body, but don't act on the desire. The desire itself is not harmful. It's not a problem. You can coexist with the desire as long as you're not trying to resist it. Resistance makes the desire go up. We are so quick to want to get rid of the desire that we try to squish it. 
It's important to make room for both and give them both their due. Quote, what you resist persists. Carl Jung. If you're thinking, okay, allowing desire sounds miserable, you are not alone. That is exactly what I thought too. I thought, great, I get to mentally, or maybe even literally, drool all over the place, but I don't get to have my chocolate at the end? Who decided this was a good idea? If you find yourself trying to resist the desire, it's only because you haven't learned how not to resist it and how to allow it. Learning to allow and sit with the discomfort of desire is something you can learn. When you learn how to allow an urge, you realize that the desire, the urge, is completely harmless. It's a vibration in your body. The only time it becomes a problem is when you either act on it or resist it. Just follow your list. L-I-S-T. Okay, so what does allowing even mean? We are so used to resisting, it's hard to imagine what allowing actually means. We've been conditioned to white knuckle it. Think of it this way. Imagine you're in a river and there's a waterfall downstream. One, you could swim with the current and go over the waterfall. That's acting on the desire. Two, you could swim against the current, get tired out, and eventually get swept over the waterfall. That's resistance or trying to use willpower. Or three, you can swim to the side where the current isn't so strong and just watch the water go by. That's allowing the urge. The more you can be present with yourself and the desire, the more you can realize, wow, I'm okay right now in this second. As soon as you start thinking into the future, you begin to think like, I don't know if I can hold out. I don't know if I can handle it. That's when resistance comes in. So just be in the moment. I'm okay right now in this second. What would it be like to make all of your feelings and desires okay? Use the acronym LIST, L-I-S-T, to help you allow your feelings and cravings. Number one, L is look for it. Number two, I is identify it. Number three, S is surrender to it. And number four, T is track it. So let's look at those one at a time. L, look for it. You can expect the desire to come. It's a given. Your brain is simply operating on the old habit pattern that you've taught it. It's like knowing the tide is coming in. No matter where you build your sandcastle, you can expect the tide to come. There is nothing wrong with you when the desire comes in. You can expect it to faithfully show up around the same time each day because you've taught your brain that a reward is coming. It just sends the signal, hey, it's reward time. I used to feel like such a failure when I would predictably feel the desire for wine around 5 p.m. Something's wrong with me. But it was just my brain doing exactly what I had taught it to do. As soon as I released the judgment of myself, seeing the desire come in at 5 p.m. was just something I expected and accepted. Expecting cravings to go away is like asking a running coach to teach you how to not get tired when running a marathon. (laughs) Can you imagine if a marathon runner said to themselves, I feel tired, I must be doing this wrong. They would never finish a race. So step one is don't judge yourself for feeling the desire for a treat. It is just your brain following the pattern that it has learned. 
There's always the option to indulge in the craving. But just like the runner, there's also the option to keep going another minute or another five minutes and see what happens. Lean into allowing it. Number two, identify it. Plan to allow yourself the treat you desire. Yep, that's right. I said plan for it. Plan to allow to have the treat. But before you actually have it, take a moment to look inward and name what you're feeling. For example, I'm pretty angry that Ted didn't send the report on time, so then I had to hustle at the end of the day. Or I'm feeling lonely because Sue left town yesterday. Whatever it is, just allow it to be there. It's okay to have feelings. They're normal. You're normal. And you are strong enough to feel them fully. Next, get connected to the feeling in your body. What are the sensations you're feeling? Think of it this way. If you were trying to explain this feeling to an alien who had no concept of feelings, how would you describe what it feels like? For example, sensations can be something like a tightness in my chest or tension in my shoulders, heaviness in my stomach. The more you describe the sensations you feel, the more you realize you can survive it. A feeling is just a vibration in your body. Try writing it out. Sometimes I feel like my thoughts are so embarrassing and shameful, and I really don't ever want anyone else to see them. So I actually have a note in an app in my phone labeled note so that no one would know that it's my personal thoughts. How embarrassing. Where I can write out what's in my head when my thoughts are yelling at me really loudly. You would be amazed how powerful that simple act is. Just getting my thoughts out of my head helps me look at my thoughts with curiosity rather than judgment and think, well, all that makes sense now. No wonder I was feeling upset if that's what I was thinking. Maybe get curious and ask yourself a few questions. Number one, where are you hanging out in your thoughts? Are you hanging out in the past, ruminating about something that happened in the day? Or are you hanging out in the future, wondering if or when you'll have the treat or feeling stressed out about not having one? Just notice, no judgment. Number two, what's the role you're playing in the story you're telling yourself? Often we play the victim when we're thinking of wanting a treat. Something like, I had a really long day, I deserve it. And when we play the villain in our mind the next day by thinking, I can't believe I did that again, I'm so stupid. So ask yourself, how can you be the hero in your own story? Number three, ask yourself, what is this urge or desire actually about? What are you avoiding? Often we're avoiding a feeling. Don't judge yourself if having a treat has become the way for you to practice self-care. Instead, recognize that we've been taught to go on this external hunt to look for something outside of ourselves to feel better. If you can't write it out, talk it out. Keep an audio journal and an app on your phone. Call a friend. Talk to your plants. They're much better listeners than cats, by the way. Number four, will a treat really address what's underneath the desire? How will it not solve that tension? For example, a lot of times I realize the tension I'm feeling is actually fatigue. I think I want a treat, but really I'm just tired. And a treat is not going to solve my feeling of being tired. So sometimes realizing that having the treat will actually make the reason that we want the treat worse. 
Number five, ask yourself, what are reasons why I don't want it? Sometimes just reminding yourself of the reasons why you don't want it in the long run can give you pause and let your conscious mind have a voice in the conversation. Again, note, this is not about judgment. This is not about you know, beating yourself up. It's just an opportunity to pause. Number six, ask yourself, how can I be the parent to my toddler brain that wants its pacifier in the moment? You see, the subconscious mind is a lot like a toddler. Imagine if you gave a toddler a piece of candy every day at 5 p.m. And then one day you decide, nope, not today, no more candy. (laughs) The toddler naturally still wants it and will probably throw a fit when he doesn't get it. That is not a problem. You, as the parent, know what is better for the toddler so you can patiently ride out the tantrum. Your subconscious mind is exactly like a toddler expecting its 5 p.m. candy. And then finally, ask yourself, what do I really deserve? Sometimes the reason we tell ourselves that we want the treat is because, quote, I deserve it. And that feels really true in the moment. But if you step back and ask yourself, what do I really deserve? That can give your conscious mind a chance to say things like, I deserve to feel great in my body tomorrow. I deserve to go to bed without feeling overly full or gross. I deserve to feel proud of myself. I deserve to keep my word to myself. I deserve to know that I am making progress and not sabotaging myself. It is okay when your brain sends up the thought, I deserve it, but that doesn't mean you have to believe it without asking questions. All right, number three, back to our list, L-I-S, surrender to it. Okay, surrender technique A. If you're a person of faith, here's a way to describe what it is like to allow your feelings or allow a craving. Proactively let go and release what you're feeling to God or the universe. Remind yourself, I am safe. I can be free to feel my feelings because I am safe to let go. And I know that I am completely held. This is already working out for me. Let God handle all your feelings for you. Surrender technique B. Imagine this. How would you respond to your child if they walked into the room with tears in their eyes? And this is not the I'm injured kind of tears. These are the my feelings are hurt and I just need to cry about it kind of tears. How would you treat your child? Or maybe if you don't have a child, how would you treat a young person in your life? Now, imagine that the feeling you have is just like your child who needs to talk it out a little bit. Whether you're feeling a craving or stress or anxiety, how can you look at the feeling like an entity in itself, like your child, and treat it with kindness and understanding? Surrender technique C. Another strategy is to look inward into your body. Sit quietly for a minute. Try and locate the feeling in your body. Where is it? Stomach? Shoulders? Chest? How would you describe the sensation? Tightness? Burning? Heaviness? If you could give this feeling a shape, what shape would it be? A spiky ball? A blob? Maybe like a gas? What color would it be? Yellow? Brownish green? Gray? Anything is okay. Just see whatever comes up. 
Next, address the feeling as a shape and as if you would speak to it inside your mind, say, thank you for being here. I see you. I honor you. I know you are serving your purpose. You are allowed to be here. Then engage the feeling in a dialogue. So imagine you're speaking to the feeling and try and respond with the voice of the feeling. So ask this feeling, if you could speak, what would you say? Just listen, see what comes up. I know when I do this, when I allow my feelings to speak, it's almost like the whiny five-year-old. It's you know, the voices that come up are like, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm sad. And they're, they're very primal, but that's okay. You're giving your feelings a voice instead of locking them in the basement of your body. So next, again, speaking to the feeling, ask, what is your purpose here? Often the feeling is here to protect you. It is serving a real purpose. It's doing its best to do its job to protect you. It is not here to hurt you. Next, again, speaking to the feeling, ask it, what message do you have for me? This can be really enlightening and really powerful. Another way to think about it is if you could give a message to fill in the blank of your name, what would you say to her? The things that come up can be so amazing and deep. I've often find that my feelings are so wise if I just give them the opportunity to speak and have a voice. When you're ready, thank the feeling for being there and just imagine that you're sitting next to it on a bench. The feeling is there and just sit there next to it. You don't have to make it go away. Just be with it. After a minute or two, what is the shape and color of the feeling now? Has it changed? If you feel so inspired to do so, try journaling about what you experienced and maybe what you learned from the feeling. This can be a really powerful technique. And finally, surrender technique D. Note, if you're not a fan of water or swimming, you might want to skip this one. But imagine you're in a body of water and you're trying to stay afloat. Your difficult feelings or the desire for the craving are the water. Instead of resisting, simply let go and allow yourself to slip under the water, surrendering to the feeling of it. Then breathe in and you find that you can actually breathe underwater and survive within it and thrive within it. The important piece is the surrendering. Lean into the feeling. You don't act on the craving. You simply allow yourself to feel the craving. Try just five minutes at a time to build up that muscle and prove to yourself that you can handle a craving or a negative feeling. Please remember that everything is an experiment. If something works, great, keep it. If something doesn't work, great, tweak it. Everything is helping you and there is never a reason to feel guilt or shame yourself. All wins and losses are helping you learn more about yourself and that is the win in the long run. Quote, most of our suffering comes from resisting what is already here, particularly our feelings. All any feeling wants is to be welcomed, touched, allowed. It wants attention. It wants kindness. If you treated your feelings with as much love as you treated your dog or your cat or your child, you'd feel as if you were living in heaven every day of your sweet life. Janine Roth. 
Okay, back to our list, L-I-S-T. Number four, T is for track it. You cannot take away a reward from your brain and expect it to be just fine without a replacement reward. Keep a tracker of the days that you've gone through these prompts as a mental reward. Give yourself visible credit for the work that you're doing. Use a jar of marbles or a tracking sheet to give yourself the win of seeing progress. After five minutes of allowing the desire, put a marble in a clear jar or give yourself a check mark on a sheet of paper. It's so important to be able to see it. Having it in a note on your phone doesn't work as well because it's not as visible. We're talking about creating a mental reward and the way to do that is to be able to see it. Remember, your brain got a reward from having the treat. So you've got to give it a replacement reward for not having the treat. Otherwise, you'll have mutiny in your brain. Aim to fill up your jar or your tracking sheet over the course of a few months. You'll still get to have whatever you desire. Just put it off for five minutes and really lean into what that desire feels like. Soften towards it. Welcome it in. Get curious about it. The skill is being able to watch yourself think and not react. You are the witness watching yourself have the urge. Observe those sentences with peace and curiosity and fascination and try not to get wrapped up in all the drama of it. The desire is completely harmless unless you react to it or fight it. Your brain is not trying to hurt you by bringing these thoughts up. It's trying to survive. It's trying to save you from pain. You may not be able to do this the first time or the first 20 times you try it. I certainly didn't. But you can learn it with practice. Watch yourself have a desire and not act on it. It's very different from resisting it and wishing it wasn't there. Believe me, three steps forward and two steps back is really normal. Expect that to happen. Imagine it like this. Learning to surf takes hours to learn. Every wipeout you have before getting up on your board looks like a failure, but you're actually learning. Each failure is not actually failure. Each wipeout is a crucial part of the process of getting to a place where you feel more confident and you can stand up on the board successfully. Each time you try to allow an urge and feel tense because you're resisting or find yourself acting on it, that's okay. Keep at it. You are learning a skill. Note, please do not think of this as simply resisting and willpowering your way to 30 days without sugar or a dry January or something like that. Ultimately, that will only increase your desire. Do not try to white knuckle it. Allow the urge to be there. What if you did an experiment? Maybe give yourself a week or five days. For the next five days, before I indulge in whatever I'm craving, I'll take five minutes to do this exercise and get curious about the feelings in my body. Then, after five minutes, you can have the treat you're craving. It could be interesting to see what comes up. Experiencing negative feelings and getting down is a normal expected part of life. Sure, it helps to proactively maintain a positive mindset, But life is not meant to be happy all the time. We are meant to have a balance of positive and negative emotions. That is part of this beautiful, brutal, magnificent, excruciating, wondrous ride we call being human. I have a theory that before your soul or my soul came to incarnate as who we are today, 
some sort of wisdom inside us knew that life would be all the things, all the ups and the downs. And in our soul's wisdom, we said, yes, sign me up for that. Quote, my aim isn't to feel happy. It's to feel everything. Glennon Doyle. But what if I fail? Let me tell you, when I first tried this, the voice of fear inside my heart was freaking out. She was yelling and whining and moaning and saying, but what if I screw this up? What if I fail? The perfectionist inside me was so not into this because I was terrified that I would suck at it and fall off the wagon hard. We are afraid to fail because of what failure would mean. But what if you could make it mean something other than you're a sucky human that is destined to wallow in failure? For me, what if I fail loomed large and in charge in my thoughts until I decided to choose a new thought that also felt true? I began to think, maybe I can figure this out. This whole process is about learning, and I'm pretty good at learning new things. That was the thought I tuned into when the desire came in strong and hot at 5.01 p.m. each night. I'd go a few days of really jamming in on my thought redirect and then something would disrupt my pattern and I would forget it for a while. Be smarter than me. Find a new, more empowering thought than what if I fail. Write it down. Sticky note it to your desk or your mirror or your forehead. Give yourself the best shot at filling your brain with thoughts that lead to positive feelings empowering feelings, because those positive feelings lead to intentional actions that lead to results that just might blow away your expectations of what you thought you were capable of. You've got this. I think I'll feel deprived. Feeling deprived comes from restriction. That's not what we're doing here. Make a plan to allow the desire and to have the cookies or the chips or whatever. It sounds counterintuitive, But allowing the desire teaches you that you are just fine and over time that reduces the desire's power over you. Here's a way to implement this. Plan ahead. Have a meeting with number one, you right now. Number two, your future self who is in the moment, tired from a long day, wanting the food you desire. And number three, future you the day after the food eating event. Plan how much you'll have knowing that future you in the moment will want it. You cannot rely on yourself to do what you want in the future without using your conscious brain for planning. Plan on what your subconscious habit brain is going to say in the moment and have an answer for it. Ask yourself what objections your brain will bring up in the moment when you want potato chips or ice cream. You know they're coming and you're ready and you have an answer for them so you don't let them drive your action. Question, how might the three of you compromise on a plan for how much you want to have in the moment? This is not about restriction. This is about making a realistic plan. Next, how might you anticipate that the urge to have more is coming, just like the tide coming in? It's going to be there. Anticipate it. How are you going to handle it? And then, What helps you be present with that desire when it comes in and allow it rather than resist it? Have an honest conversation with yourself about what you're willing to commit to and what you're not. 
and have a collaborative conversation around what that commitment will be. Consider all those components. If things go exactly as planned, great. (laughs) High five all three of yourselves. And when things don't go the way you planned, because that will happen, reconvene and figure out why. Use curiosity, not condemnation. Be gentle. No judgment. Make sure your commitment honors you and serves to build your self-esteem versus being a way to break yourself down. This sounds like a lot of work. Yes, it does take effort. And guess what? That is a good thing. Not thinking and not working is how you got to this point in the first place. The brain wants to efficiently delegate thoughts and patterns to the subconscious mind because that's easy. That uses up less energy. It's like saying, you know, I think my four-year-old is mature enough to be in charge of dinner. And then you give him free reign in the kitchen and act surprised when the spatula is on fire because he left it on the burner and he's crying because he sliced his finger with the knife. You already know what happens when you allow your brain to delegate the thought action pattern of when I get home from the office, I'll reach for a bag of chips. You get that automatic Pavlovian response, which makes you feel out of control. So what if it's work? You cannot sit on the couch while your four-year-old burns down the kitchen and say, it'll be fine. He'll figure it out. You've got to stand up and do something. That's what this is all about. You are proactively pulling that previously delegated thought up out of the basement of your subconscious mind and into the light of day. It's natural to think that urges and desires are something you want to avoid. It can feel uncomfortable to just allow it. However, what if you could view these moments in a different light? What if every time you feel an urge and allow it, that's a positive thing because it means it's an opportunity for you to get in the reps when it counts. If your goal is to eventually lift 50 pounds, you'd start with little two pound weights, right? And then you build up to five pounds and then 10 pounds. Just like that, you're building the muscle of being willing to feel any emotion one rep at a time. Feeling an urge is a sign that it's working. Just like learning to surf, it takes hours of practice. But once you know how, you know how forever. Falling off and falling off again is normal when learning to surf. It's not failing. It's learning. It's the same with learning to allow desire. Keep getting back up. It is absolutely worth it. Your freedom is on the other side. What does success look like? Some clients tell me that they'll feel like they've succeeded when they, quote, get over their old habits. Let me tell you this. Waiting until you no longer feel any urges, desires, or cravings, or temptations before you can feel successful is hurting you in the long run. Let's look at this from a different angle. Let's say you wanted to learn to play tennis. In order to learn and get better at tennis, you'd likely take some lessons and begin to improve. At the same time, you'd probably still have some bad habits from time to time, like bad footwork or taking your racket back too late or whatever. Nevertheless, as you practice more, you can see that you're improving and you've come a long way. Those bad habits are still there sometimes, but you're working on them. At what point in your tennis journey have you, quote, succeeded? 
The truth is you are succeeding all along the way in lots of ways that add up to your significant transformation as a tennis player. Conquering cravings and urges is similar. There is no finish line. You are succeeding in little and big ways all the time. Don't put your happiness and your success out there beyond some arbitrary marker. That's like trying to chase the horizon. It's always just a little bit out of reach. There really is no finish line for when you'll be a success as a tennis player. It's a practice. It's a discipline. It's about improving upon who you were yesterday rather than reaching some external benchmark. Learning to allow cravings is the same thing.